Hi everyone. Before we launch into this week's podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who's been generous enough to become patrons at patreon.com forward slash two scientists. As a reward for her support of science outreach, today's episode is dedicated to the wonderful Luciana Taylor-Clark. We hope you enjoy. I'll answer your phone calls And never swipe left Pause my game just to listen I am not sick of you yet I have to admit I like you more than I planned I would put down my phone So thank you everyone for tuning in for another one of our Two Scientists podcasts. I should have started by asking Brianna how to say her last name. Pobiner. Pobiner. Brianna Pobiner is our guest today uh, in Oregon. How are you doing, Brianna? I'm doing great, thank you. It's been a fun conference so far. Yeah, this is this is a very surreal experience for us because we're currently at the Oregon Convention Center and as well as a meeting for evolutionary scientists, there is also a kind of um, heroes and villains Comic-Con type deal and we are seeing characters like Harley Quinn and Catwoman and all sorts of odd characters. In fact, apparently the guy who plays Arrow is a member of your meeting. So there are people out there weirder than evolutionary biologists. That's, so it would seem. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't go that far necessarily. but <laughs> They dress weirder than us, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not sure about that. But um, yes, let's give you the benefit of the doubt for now. <laughs> that sounds good. So how are you enjoying the meeting so far? I'm having a good time. Um, I haven't had a chance to actually go to many talks because I've been involved in some kind of education, outreach, science communication efforts, but it's it's nice catching up with old colleagues, which is one of the reasons I really like to go to conferences. Yeah, actually, so why don't you tell us about what you're here for, because um, science and education and communication is obviously our bag. So if you could explain what your workshops were about, that would be sure. great. Sure. So um, yesterday I was helping out with a workshop on science communication um, that was really about uh, basics kind of 101 about how to communicate science effectively. Mm-hmm. So it's some basic principles like trying not to use jargon, um, trying to use analogies, um, trying to talk like a human instead of a scientist, I guess I would say. Um, and also talking about there was a set, there was a part of it that was geared towards um, broader impacts and how to think about um, the impacts that your science will have and, the, and your research will have and how to write good um, funding applications thinking about broader impacts. Mm-hmm. So that was yesterday. And today in the morning I was involved in a symposium called Communicating the Relevance of Human Evolution. And this grew out of a working group that I was a part of at a place called Nescent, which is the National Evolutionary Synthesis Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had working group meetings, four working group meetings in 2010 and 2011 um, that resulted in a whole host of really fun and interesting outcomes like paper publications, the start of a Center for Evolutionary Medicine. Um, I got an NSF grant to develop teaching materials for high school biology that use human examples to teach evolution. So I was reporting on some of my evolution education research results in that symposium. And then I was working, and then I jumped over to another room um, 
and I joined a workshop for high school teachers where I was actually presenting some of the materials and having them walk through them and hope that they use them in their classrooms. Very cool. Um, it's really hard not to be distracted. <laughs> I just saw John Barrowman walk past and I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who. So for those of you who know who that is, um, yeah, I'm a little bit starstruck today. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, what we should actually start by talking about really is your background and how you got into the research that you do. So I'm a paleoanthropologist, and that means that I study human evolution, and my particular research questions center around the evolution of human diet, and particularly I'm interested in meat eating, mm -hmm. kind of the what, when, who, why, how of the origin of meat eating and evolution of meat eating in our evolutionary history. Um, and the methods that I use are, I look at fossils of animals that have butchery marks left by human ancestors. I want to know what kinds of animals our ancestors ate. I want to know what parts of those animals they ate. I want to know when there was a transition from basically getting the scrappy parts of animals, the leftovers, maybe scavenging from carnivores, to actually our ancestors becoming more dominant predators on the landscape. Okay. By ancestors, how far back are we talking? Yeah, so the evidence for meat eating goes back at least about two and a half million years, potentially even earlier than that. So the human family tree goes back about six million years, between six and seven. That's about when we shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees, who are our mm -hmm. closest living relatives. So about half of, a little more than half of our evolutionary history um, our ancestors basically ate, um, they, we were always omnivores and still are, but ate mostly plants. But then all of a sudden, around two and a half million years ago, we start to see evidence of humans butchering and eating really large animals. And so this was a really big kind of ecological and behavioral shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you get into this specifically? Because we were talking about this just before we started the podcast. And you said you did not enjoy science originally. I it's true, and it's it's something that I don't know if I if, if I should admit that in the company of evolutionary scientists. But <laughs> um, when I went to college, I was planning on being an English major or maybe a comparative literature major, um, and I went to my dean who was helping me put together my set of four classes my first semester, and I was looking for a fourth class, and she said, "Well, why don't you take anthropology?" And I said, "What? What's that? I've never heard of anthropology." And really, after the first semester. I had an absolutely wonderful professor, and for the first time, maybe because anthropology, at least human evolution, is about studying the past, um, it was really presented to me that there is so much left to learn, there's so many mysteries left to solve, um, and I felt like I was almost invited into the process of, well, here are research questions that you could answer in the future, and I got really excited about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's heartening to know, so people who aren't into science when they're in their high school, there are still options for them at a later date. Absolutely. And so um, there's always options. So you actually work at the Smithsonian? I do. I work at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. That is just super cool. Uh, and you're part of a uh, human origins program, is that right? That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a, a kind of a, a research focus within the anthropology department at the Natural History Museum. Um, there's only three of us full-time staff, so it's a pretty small program. Um, but it's a program that's really focused on the origin and evolution of humans, of us, of our ancestors. 
working at the Smithsonian, I'd imagine, is quite a competitive thing to do. So how did you get your job? So um, I got my job, sort of the origin of my job came over a conversation at a photocopy shop in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, so my boss, the director of the Human Origins Program, Rick Potts, and I had known each other for several years. We'd both done research in Kenya. I was finishing up my PhD data collection over there. Um, and we met in this photocopy shop because we were both picking up our field notebooks that we have to photocopy and leave in the National Museum. This is part of the research regulations as we were both affiliated with the National Museums of Kenya. Of course, the photocopies weren't ready, so we were talking, and he asked me what I had um, lined up and what plans I had when I was finished collecting my dissertation data. Did I have a postdoc lined up? And I said, well, I've been talking to one person, but, you know, might there be an opportunity at the Smithsonian? And he said, well, you know, I'm looking for somebody who can potentially help run my field site in southern Kenya, my archaeological excavations. And I thought, well, I can do that because I've actually spent every summer in grad school helping to run a field program taking undergraduates up to northern Kenya to excavate so that I can do. And he said, I'm also looking for somebody who can, um, who's interested in maybe coming to help me put an exhibit together on human evolution. And I thought, well, I don't have any experience in that, but that sounds fun. And then he was also looking for somebody who might want to study the fossils from the earliest layers of that excavation in southern Kenya at a site called Delorgasile. And I thought, Oh, well, I would totally like to do that. And it aligns well with my research. Um, and so we sort of, you know, it was this moment of he thought, wow, you kind of check all the boxes. And I thought, this is an amazing opportunity. And I, I always assumed that I would go into um, classic academia and become a tenure track faculty member. Um, but this is so much cooler. I really <laughs> love it. Clearly, you get to go to very exciting places, like obviously Kenya is one of your focuses. Um, tell us what it is like at the excavation sites. Is it much like what we see in <laughs> the movies and TV programs? You know, um, It's not usually quite as dangerous as what you see on in, in Indiana Jones movies, potentially. Um, so it varies between sometimes you dig for days and find nothing. Those are not necessarily my favorite times to be uh -huh. on excavations. Um, but for me, honestly, every time we uncover a fossil, particularly fossils that have those butchery marks on them from early human um, activity, I am the first person to touch something that mm -hmm. an ancestor of mine a million years ago touched. And that is a phenomenal and kind of eerie experience. And I absolutely love it. And it's worth all the hot, sweaty, dusty <laughs> moments of kind of finding nothing. So so what is it that you find generally? Um, so it's, it's two main traces of human behavior. One is the artifacts, basically stone tools that humans have left behind, kind of scattered across the landscape. Um, and those tell us about things like where humans were making their tools, where, we, where they were getting the rocks from, what kinds of habitats maybe they like to hang out in to make their tools. Um, and we also find fossils of animals. Now, sometimes those are just, those are just from animals that lived and died there. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they're from animals that people butchered. So then we can look at things like, well, where were they butchering animals and where were they making tools? And um, we can get a, a more full picture of the behavior of early humans by looking at those kinds of traces. Mm -hmm. 
So just out of curiosity, are you a vegetarian? Yeah, I get asked that all the time. I'm, I'm not sure a vegetarian. <laughs> um, I, I do like eating meat, um, but that really isn't a driver of my research. So. Okay. No, so um, I guess I think I'm thinking more from the kind of health aspect. So mm. we, we have a lot of people now who I, I completely understand why they want to take up a vegetarian diet. It seems like a very um, socially conscious thing to do. Mm. Um, I think maybe in my mind, veganism is a step too far. But so what is it? Is there anything from your research that indicates whether this has health repercussions for us now? Yeah, that's a good question. So kind of the, the you know, one of the things that's unique about this time in our evolutionary history is we have amazing choice in the food mm-hmm. that we can eat. And that food production is drastically different than it was even a few thousand years ago. And certainly before the origin of agriculture and domestication and, you know, basically taming the planet so that it can produce food for us. So um, there are health repercussions in the kind of way that we eat and the amount of processed food that we eat. But looking deeper in our evolutionary history... Actually, it was the incorporation of additional kinds of food and sources of food that seems to have been something that led humans to be really adaptable and really successful. Yeah, on the subject of diet and so on, do you know how kind of... Because obviously the microbiome is a huge topic of conversation now. Is your research able to tell us anything about how people what people's microbiome might have been like back then? I would love to like dig up a fossil microbiome, but that's Uh probably not going to happen. I mean, I guess the only hope we might ever have of that in my wildest fantasies is that somehow there's, um, you know, DNA from the microbiome that's been preserved in sediment that, Mm -hmm. you know, humans were buried in. But I don't even know how you could recognize that compared to any kind of just background DNA. So my research doesn't tell us much about what the human microbiome might have been in the past, but maybe other people's do. I don't know. Yeah. So actually the the question from our former speaker, Stefan, was have digestive bacteria evolved to adapt Mm. to changes in the human diet due to modern food technology like refined grains? Um, So I don't know about the microbiome, but there is good evidence that on a physiological level, we have definitely evolved to be able to digest things like grains. So there's Mm -hmm. um, a good example that um, there's a genetic mutation that um, is a copy number variation. So we have so some populations of modern humans have multiple copy numbers of a gene that basically codes for the expression of an enzyme in saliva that helps us digest starch. Mm-hmm. And so populations that have been eating starch for longer than have been eating high starch diets have more, have a higher number of um, copies of that gene. Mm-hmm. And that gene is expressed in the amount of starch digesting or starch basically breaking down enzyme in our saliva. So even in modern humans in short relatively short evolutionary time spans we can actually see adaptations to changes in diet Mm -hmm. so and and one of the cool things about studying diet is there's actually um, recent changes in our evolutionary history that are the result of changes in diet oh for example so my favorite example is lactose tolerance oh and so there are about a third of the world's population, a third of the humans on the planet of the 7.4-ish billion of us, can digest lactose as adults. So that means that we can digest the sugar in milk. Um, babe, almost all babies can do that because babies get their initial, usually get their initial nutrition from nursing. 
Um, but usually around the age of two or three, basically the, um, the gene to express um, lactose tolerance turns off. But in populations that have lived for a long time with um, dairy animals that have mm-hmm. domesticated dairy animals, there has been really strong natural selection on the ability to digest lactose. Mm-hmm. And so um, looking even in skeletons of modern humans seven or 8,000 years ago, we don't see those genetic mutations. But in the last seven or 8,000 years, there have been multiple um, it's basically a, a case of parallel or convergent evolution. There have been multiple multiple mutations in different populations that allow for the digestion digestion of um, lactose, and so that is amazing. Yeah. Just in the last few thousand years, we now have a few billion people on the planet that can digest milk sugar. It's awesome. It's crazy. It is crazy. So really, I mean. Lactose intolerant people then are, you <laughs> are, know, they kind of are the ancestral state. Yes. in a sense, that's right. Um, and so, being able to digest lactose is a very recent phenomenon in our evolutionary history. Okay, we have a very broad diet, and we can eat a lot of things. So, how do you explain the the fact that we are becoming intolerant to so many things? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm actually really curious about things like nut allergies and gluten intolerance, and I don't know if some of this was as prevalent in the past but it just wasn't reported if it's something that wasn't recognized and not Mm -hmm. identified so i don't know actually whether the prevalence has increased or it's just the awareness has increased but either way i think it's kind of interesting yeah so there's there's no kind of you don't have any real evidence that some of these things might have been a problem in the past and yeah i don't i don't know of evidence for that so yeah I'm sure you also observe physical changes like in, you know, bone structure and so on. Can you tell us more about those? Yeah. So unfortunately, in a sense, um, the origin of agriculture and domestication wasn't particularly good for our health initially. So there's evidence for a decrease in stature. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also evidence at that time for a decrease in bone density in modern humans. Um, but there is, there, you know, there's a rebound after that, kind of once there was a little bit of recalibration in the diet diversified, then we see people, populations getting healthier again. I'm sure another question you get asked an <laughs> awful lot is what are your thoughts on the paleo diet? I do get asked that question <laughs> a lot and I have a lot of thoughts on the paleo diet and we've already talked about some of them in a sense. So. I guess, um, I mean, the paleo diet's really convenient for me because people are interested in my research because it has to do with this, with this kind of fad diet. Um, But I think what makes me a little frustrated about the modern paleo diet movement is that it's really all about excluding food. Mm -hmm. The idea that our ancestors didn't eat X, Y, Z. They didn't eat grains. They didn't eat starches. They didn't eat, you know, dairy. They didn't eat legumes. They didn't eat, you know, meat potentially. And there's really evidence that our ancestors ate all of those things, depending on how far back you go. Mm-hmm. So um, one of these days I'm thinking about writing a popular book about the paleo diet, <laughs> about what evidence do we really have about the kinds of foods that our ancestors ate? And there's tons of evidence out there. And it's from lots of different sources, from genetics, from archaeology, from um, bone chemistry, from the residue of plants left on early humans teeth two million years ago so there's a lot of evidence that we do have and a lot of it doesn't really support the modern paleo diet movement of don't eat all of these things because our ancestors didn't and our bodies haven't had enough time to evolve to digest (laughs) these things and i say i don't think so 
Well, given that in 7,000 years we've managed to adapt to drinking milk, I think it's, it's a, a little bit foolhardy e- to... That's a perfect example. And, and the adaptation to be able to digest starch. So. Yeah. Um, did you just say that you can measure plants that were on teeth several million years ago? You can. And actually, they're, um, so looking at, uh, we're, all, we're, we're very grateful that there weren't Pleistocene and paleo toothbrushes because basically, <laughs> basically looking at the residue of plaque or tartar on teeth, mm-hmm. you can often find actual little bits of fossilized plants in there. And one of the cool things that researchers have found looking at this is that um, Neanderthals, who are our closest extinct relatives, have this very well-deserved reputation for being really efficient hunters of giant, now extinct Ice Age animals like woolly rhinos and mammoths and giant red deer. And for a long time, it was assumed that they basically ate no plants. They lived in the Ice Ages of Europe and Asia. Not a lot could grow plant-wise in that time and place. But actually looking at some of these little bits of plants on teeth, it's been found that Neanderthals actually ate a wide variety of plants. Some of these plants seem to have been actually medicinal, And that we can tell from the plant residues that Neanderthals actually cooked some of their food. Because the phytolists, the little silica bodies in plants that they find on teeth, they get very altered when they're burnt or cooked um, or boiled. And so we can add, well, not me, I haven't done the research, but colleagues that have done the research can say Neanderthals definitely ate plants, a wide variety of them, and they cooked some of them. Oh. So that's pretty cool. Interesting. So what kind of stuff were they eating? Um, So they were eating, um, some of the plants that they were eating were really bitter. Mm -hmm. um, And those are potentially some that may have some medicinal value. Um, But um, they're they're eating a decently wide variety of plants. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, this is another thing that uh, comes up a lot. I I think it's more in the, the GMO conversation, which is that we have now altered plants and grains and who knows what else to have you know we've adapted these things so that we can eat them because now they're sweet they're pleasant to eat (laughs) that's right and they may not kill us and they may have done that before but yeah so i mean and actually some of the phytolists on neanderthal teeth are even things like the precursors of wheat and barley so neanderthals sixty-five thousand years ago were actually eating grains so that goes deep in our evolutionary history don't go in for the fad diets i think is what we're trying to say yeah i would agree with that (laughs) Um, we have a question from David who says that a few million years ago we started eating meat now what happened to prompt us to do that so that so those why questions are often the hardest ones to answer when we're looking in the deep past Um, one hypothesis is that um, there was a global cooling and drying trend and so maybe some of the resources like fruit that early humans were eating in the forest were less plentiful and if there were more animals around people were just more likely to encounter animals potentially mm-hmm. um, but there there seems to have been a shift in the recognition that dead animals are food I should say so chimpanzees who are our closest living relatives they eat meat they hunt monkeys but they don't seem to scavenge they don't seem to recognize dead animals as food but our ancestors seem to have recognized that dead animals are food. So I, some of the research that I do is on the idea that early humans scavenge the leftovers from big predator kills, things like 
the Pleistocene lions, leopards, hyenas, and even things like saber-toothed cats may have left a lot of meat over when they were done eating their prey. And our ancestors kind of snuck in and were like, ooh, that looks tasty. I don't know what made them think that that would be a good thing to eat, but it seems to have happened. I suppose it could just have been desperation, I guess. It could have been. Um, certainly when early humans may have migrated into new environments, you know, new plants may have been more dangerous, but animals are animals and mm-hmm. meat is meat. And so that may have been, in a sense, a more trusted resource. I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to invent a time machine and kind of do observations two and a half million years ago. I would, <laughs> I would love to do that. So... Uh, he now asks, what made modern civilization? Was it agriculture or cooking? So um, those two things happen at very different time periods. Agriculture is a lot more closely related in time to things we think of that have to do with civilization, like the development of cities and settling down. So agriculture was probably more tied to modern civilization as we think about it. Interestingly, the evidence for cooking goes back much deeper in our evolutionary history. So even back a million years ago, um, there's evidence that humans had some intermittent control of fire and seemed to have cooked food. And cooking food lets us eat food that would otherwise be poisonous. It lets us break down food physically. It lets us break down food chemically. Um, and there's there was a great study out of Harvard University where um, researchers had... Uh, volunteers basically chew cooked food and raw food and just cooking food and even just even cutting food up into smaller pieces um, allows for much less time and energy involved in chewing food. Mm -hmm. I mean, chimpanzees and gorillas spend hours and hours of their day chewing their food and we don't have to do that, especially once we cook it. This is true. Although even humans we're not very good at chewing our food as much as we're supposed to right well a lot of the processing that we do of our food happens outside our mouths so um, and the origin of technology really has a lot to do with breaking down food Mm -hmm. so uh, going back to the the idea that humans discovered meat discarded by other animals and decided to eat it it brings me on to um, something I read in the description of your work, which is that you also study cannibalism. <laughs> so I did, I did one study, uh-huh. which was really fun, um, of looking at evidence for cannibalism in a group in the Cook Islands. And so I didn't get to go to the Cook Islands. I got to go to um, a collaborator's house in New Jersey where she had some of the <laughs> remains from the Cook Islands. That's a bit different. It is a bit different. But, um, but I was brought in because I had expertise in recognizing butchery activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a question about whether there was we there there was good evidence that some of these human remains were burned but i was looking for evidence of actual butchery and i found it so why is it that we're repelled by cannibalism i think there is an inherent human tendency not to think of ourselves as food i think that's probably a real <laughs> I, I think that's a good instinct um from an evolutionary standpoint of perpetuating our species um so um, but there, I mean, actually evidence for cannibalism also goes deep in our evolutionary history. There's a site in Spain that's about 400,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Some of the earliest Neanderthals seem to have practiced cannibalism, probably not from like a ritual perspective, but from a nutritional perspective. If you're starving, yep. um, then chances are you may eat some of your neighbors or relatives who died because mm-hmm. they're a source of food. 
Yeah. So I was thinking less about, you know, just thinking humans look tasty and more about... <laughs> more about, I'm really, really hungry and I have nothing else to eat, potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, are there still tribes in South America that practice cannibalism? I don't know, but I suspect that that's the case. Yeah. Um, David says he is actually surprised that more people don't think of other people as food. So, you know, why don't humans eat each other more often? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we have so many sources of food. Um, and I think we have such rich social lives and... Um, a lot of cultures have belief in an afterlife that has to do with our physical form. So I suspect that it's a lot of it is out of respect for the dead in your own community. Um, and that's why sometimes when cannibalism does happen, it's in a very ritual sense or it's in, it's in a context of war and conquest. So eating your enemies is kind of, you know, sometimes part of what cannibalism is about. And now speaking about rituals and... Um religion as someone who studies evolution do you often incur people who say well i don't believe the evidence i have definitely um had those kinds of interactions and it's something i'm becoming more interested in especially with my studies of evolution education in um, the formal classroom setting and so uh, part of why i came to the smithsonian is to help put together an exhibit on human evolution and as we were doing training of volunteers or docents to work in the exhibit, there was a lot of fear around the idea that people may come in really looking for a fight or interested in you know, being combative about the idea about evolution. It has happened really infrequently. It also happened infrequently in, for the last two years, I've been involved with a project that was developing a traveling exhibit, a small version of our Hall of Human Origins, that went around to public libraries across the country, across mm -hmm. the U.S. So over two years, the exhibit went to 19 libraries, and we held community conversations and science lectures, and I did a teacher workshop, and we had conversations with clergy in all of these communities. And I would say um, it, the interactions were overwhelmingly positive. I think a lot of people who really felt strongly that they didn't want to accept the evidence probably just didn't come to engage with us. Mm -hmm. um, but also there were people that came that were in genuine struggle of, you know, they felt like their religious faith was in conflict with evolution, but they were really interested in the evidence and how might they be able to reconcile these things. And so um, talking with people that are involved in that kind of personal journey is really rewarding. Yeah. it's. I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do. And... I guess part of the problem a lot of scientists have is just they don't understand why other people don't get the evidence. I mean, it's it's right in front of your nose. Right. How is How it you don't How can you understand? deny the evidence? Yeah. And so I think, you know, there there's for a long time been what's called the information deficit model of science communication. So the idea that people don't understand science or evolution because they just don't understand they don't have enough information so let's just you know open their heads and pour more information in and then they'll get it <laughs> um that there's good empirical evidence that says that that doesn't work and particularly for people that have a worldview or a perspective that can be in conflict with the evidence for evolution that can really backfire and actually make people deal their um dig their heels in more 
And so the resources that I've helped create for high school classrooms actually explicitly talks about the idea that evolution and religion do not have to be in conflict. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the media, in a sense, really likes to portray that conflict mode of interaction. Yep. But there are lots of people, there are religious denominations, there are individuals who want to keep them separate um, and are very comfortable with that. And some that even are interested in them interacting. And so what we do in the classroom, in high school classrooms, is present students with this whole range of ways that they can interact. And there is a real feeling of relief of, oh, I don't have to choose. Because if you ask somebody to abandon their faith, which may be a core part of their personal belief, their family um, practice, and their community, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we're not going to win that battle. We shouldn't be at battle at all. Yeah. I think the difficulty arises, like I was reading um, a tweet recently of a number of states who are actively fighting teaching evolution in school, at which point, I mean, you don't even get your foot in the door. Yeah, it's true. And so, I mean, there was, you know, there have been court cases where non-scientific views like creationism or intelligent design have been, um, there's been attempts to include them in teaching in high school science classrooms, and they've all been ruled illegal they're not science you can't present them as science in a science classroom talking about the idea that there is difficulty and controversy can often be helpful for students but not the idea of well we're going to teach quote both sides of the controversy there's not a scientific controversy and there's no two sides of understanding the scientific evidence for evolution mm -hmm. i really feel like the way to engage with people is in person and a large part of the problems we have are because people are trying to communicate things in 140 characters and it goes downhill very, very quickly when you do that. Yeah, I agree. And I will say that some of the most meaningful experiences I've had in my career have been just personal conversations with people mm -hmm. who are totally struggling with this. When I, on our traveling exhibit library tour, I had a great conversation with a high school student who actually came into the library to just do his homework, didn't realize that there was an exhibit on human evolution there. And I was there in between events that we were doing and he just started to ask me questions. And he clearly had been taught and told a creationist perspective on the origin of humans, but was really curious. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I really appreciate you talking to me and introducing me to a view that I've never heard before. And that to me was, you know, a wonderful outcome. I'm not out to change people's minds. I'm out to introduce them to the evidence and at least show them why I think it's really cool. Yep. Speaking of really cool versus practical information is there a way that your research is relevant to the way we live our lives today um so i think certainly thinking about the idea of flexibility and versatility in human diets being something that has made humans so successful i think that's useful in thinking about as we mentioned before the modern paleo diet movement of people being super strict in their diets and excluding a bunch of things um it's really all about variety mm -hmm. um, in a sense and about balance and so i think in that sense it is useful to think about our ancestors um modern humans incorporated um a long time ago a lot of different kinds of food into their diets we were competing with neanderthals 
living in the same areas at the same time. Neanderthals were fairly specialized. Modern humans had a more flexible and versatile diet incorporating things like small animals and turtles and shellfish. We survived, they went extinct. I'm not saying it's because necessarily we had a broader diet, but it may have been a factor. Yay us. Yes. Yay, <laughs> you know, eating snails and stuff. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the French will approve. Escargot forever, exactly. Indeed. Okay, so David says that we like things that are nutrient-rich, which clearly proves that Brussels sprouts are bad for us, apparently. So I do not know intimately the nutritional content of Brussels sprouts, um, but from the perspective of, you know, things that we need to eat that are good for us, things that are things like... um, Honestly, sugar and calorie and fat-rich things are actually really important for things like brain development and growth development So and growth and development. So, um, but I, I have no personal comment on Brussels sprouts. I like Brussels sprouts. Me too. He's just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> wrong. No comment. Yes, quite. Telling David he's wrong about something is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I would like to say thank you so much for joining us today. You're and welcome. It's been cheers. fun. Cheers. Enjoy the rest of your meeting. Thank you. You, you as well. are growing on me. Like mole grows on cheese. You suck less than most. So stay with me, please. Though it's hard to admit. You are kind of my jam I'm trying to say I don't want So one of my favorite tales from the field is from several years ago. Um, I was involved in a research project studying a site with modern human, but ancient modern human footprints in Tanzania. At that time, I owned a four-wheel drive vehicle in Kenya. Um, And I loaded a bunch of colleagues into the vehicle. We drove south into Tanzania. Um, My vehicle was not the most reliable field vehicle. Um, (laughs) It was famous among friends and colleagues for breaking down all the time. Um, And one of my favorite stories about one of these breakdowns is that the first breakdown that happened on this trip, once we started going off-road, was that my rear half shaft um, basically broke in the vehicle. So, and I knew what had happened because I'd been in a vehicle that had happened before and I put it in low range and off we went. We were fine. Um, I, I did have a colleague that had to hang out the back window and with a shovel and actually bang the half <laughs> shaft back into the tire so it wouldn't completely fall out every time we kind of tilted and went over a bump. So that was fun. Um, but really the best part was that We got to a place as we were kind of off-roading, really getting into the bush. We got to a place where we were moving on to community land and there was kind of a little guard booth. Um, Everything had been in on dirt roads until this point, but there was a very small part that was paved and we had to go up a hill and stop at the guard booth and show our letter of permission and, and research affiliation and things like that. So we get to the guard booth and we stop and the vehicle slowly slides back down the hill and everybody starts to kind of look around and say what's going on and I absolutely busted out laughing and I said 
we actually lost our brakes about 20 kilometers ago. <laughs> I wanted to see how long I could drive off-road without you guys all realizing that we had no brakes. So I can't stop at the top of a hill because we don't have any brakes. So um, we limped into camp. Thankfully, we were able to get a really good mechanic to come out to this kind of field camp in the middle of nowhere. Um, but that I have a lot of good memories with that vehicle. So, and that, that, that was that was one of the more adventurous we ones. stuck on a mountain top where supplies are dwindling fast. No matter how the hunger grips me, I'll eat you last. You are better than awful. I have to admit, if you were on fire. I would totally spit. I would Thanks again to this week's guest, Brianna, for taking time out of her packed schedule to speak to us in the lovely city of Portland. We're also grateful to the most excellent PDX Broadsides for allowing us to use their track, I'll Eat You Last. Head to pdxbroadsides.com to listen to more of their music and find out about their upcoming gigs. And while you're doing that, I'll be getting next week's release ready. So, ta-ta for now. I guess what I'm saying that I'm fairly content If you were stung by a jellyfish I would pee on the wound I've heard it won't work But I'd do it for you If we ever get stuck on a mountain top Where supplies are dwindling fast no matter how the hunger grips me, I'll eat you last. Put your mouth on my mouth, cause I like your face. We're a match made on Tinder, so let's interface. You are better than pizza. Okay, no, no. Oh, that is a lie. But I find myself wishing that you would come by. I'll ignore all your burping and laugh at your farts. You're kind of the best, and I like all your parts. So I'm going to say it without any regret. You are kind of alright I'm not sick of you yet And if we ever get stuck on a mountain top Where supplies are dwindling fast No matter how the hunger grips me I'll eat you last If I had a nickel for every thought of you I could buy a snack Guess I'm saying that it's okay if you want to love me back. Okay, so David says that we we like things that are nutrient rich. What was the the rest of it? <laughs>